0: this morning, I want, to, uh, I want to ask and answer two questions. Ask and answer two questions. The first one is, uh, when it comes to the perseverance of the faith for Christians, those that endure to the end, that trusting Jesus on the day of their death, when it comes to that, what is our responsibility? What is my responsibility in the perseverance of the faith? Secondly, second question, what is God's responsibility to keep us to the end? What is my role? What is God's role? And as uh, as I ask these questions, I want it to be clear that it is the conviction of this church that as Jesus teaches in John 6:37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This church believes, as it says in Ephesians 1, 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This church believes, as it teaches in Philippians 1, 6, and I will be and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We believe Romans 8, right, that nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God. Or maybe most clearly, we believe Romans eleven twenty nine, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Friends, God is not a liar. He makes no mistakes. And as we will see, nothing and no one has power over him. And therefore, since he is the author of our salvation, he is the finisher of all those that truly come to him in faith. But we have finished up, for if you're new this morning, we finished up a couple weeks ago our study in the book of James. It took us about five months. And throughout that study of James, I know some of you have asked me throughout, uh, especially the ending there of James when it talks about wandering from the truth. And so uh, we're asking and answering these questions this morning because we want to be clear about whether or not someone, or how it is, someone makes it to the end, as it were. There's been this undercurrent throughout our series through James that has led us to ask these two questions. Again, what is my role as a Christian in order to persevere in the end? And what is God's role in seeing the Christian persevere to the end and not deny, not wander fully and finally in the end? And as it relates to those that do wander, that do fall away from the faith as it were, uh, if you're looking for more about that, we want to address that question today Interestingly, I looked at it this morning almost to the day four years ago. I preached a sermon on that. How do we explain those that do fully and finally fall away from the faith? You can go back on that June 3rd, 2018, where I preached from 1 John two eighteen and 19. You can go there maybe this afternoon and sometime this week and answer that question. But this morning, we're answering the question, what is our role in persevering in the faith? What is God's role? And the answers are found in the big idea of the sermon this morning. The big idea is this. Keep yourselves in the love of God as you are being kept by the power and love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God as you are being kept by the power and the love of God. We'll be studying the end of the book of Jude in order to answer these questions. Jude is found on page 1027 of the Pew Bible in front of you. You'll want to keep that open uh, as we walk through there. The word, God, this is God's word. It sets the agenda, not me. So uh, you'll want to see that I'm faithfully walking us through that passage. Now, just to kind of set the context of Jude, since that's the passage we're going to use to answer those two questions. Jude is one of those sticky pages in the Bible, right? Just one little page. Many Christians haven't read or even studied this letter. Uh, but like all of God's word, it's so relevant to our time and place. So first off, if you were to look there in Jude, you'll notice in verse 1, you'll see the connection to our study in the book of James. Jude, it is said there, is believed to be the brother of the same James that wrote the book of James. They are brothers, which would make Jude a half-brother to Jesus. We'll look back at verse 1 in a minute. But for now, I just want to answer the occasion of Jude. Why is Jude writing? Well, you can see it there in verse 3 and 4, where he says, Beloved... And deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's the occasion. So people are coming into the life of the church. They are creeping in and they're creeping in unnoticed, it said. In other words, there's nothing immediately obvious when they creep in that would tell us that they're not Christians. But while these people might claim to be Christians, the reality is, as Jude says there, it says they are ungodly people who pervert. Notice they don't deny. They pervert, they stretch, they bend, they contort the grace of God into what? Into sensuality. Sensuality is exactly what it sounds like. It's living for the senses as authority, for for feelings, or as James taught us, living for inner passions as the final authority. Sensuality is often a reference to sexual immorality and unnatural desires. You can see that reference in verse 7 where Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced. So you have these people that are coming into the church, claiming to be Christians, and not denying the grace of the gospel, but perverting it to fit a lifestyle of sensuality. Living for whatever they feel is right, while still taking the name of Christ. And Jude is writing into all of this saying, you guys have got to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You've got to make clear that which is actually the faith, and you've got to make clear what that which is not the faith. And that leads us to our first point, three points this morning. leads us to our first point as we work towards answering those two questions. This one will be a kind of precursor to those two questions. But before we do that, let me read the passage of which we'll study, verse 17 to 25. This is God's authoritative, full, and final, and inerrant word. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him. Who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Before all time and now and forever forever. Amen. First point, remember the predictions of the apostles. You see where I'm getting that right there in verse 17. Remember the predictions of the apostles. Now, in order to persevere in the faith, beloved, you guys have got to know. you got people that don't want that to happen. you got an evil one that doesn't want that to happen. You have people around you that doesn't want you to persevere in the faith. You gotta know that. How many times do we have to be told in the Bible to watch out, to be warned, to look out for false teachers, false doctrine, false messages? You guys can't, we, we can't even go our hardly two pages in the Bible without hearing these warnings. I wonder if we hear them, these warnings. I wonder if we hear these warnings. Are we attentive to these warnings? How often, Christian, are you aware that the devil prowls around you, as it says in 1 Peter 5, seeking to deceitfully devour you? How often are you, are we, aware that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities in the heavenly places? How often, Christian, do you remember as Jude tells you? How often do you remember that you have been told time and again that in the last times there will be scoffers of true Christians? I want to believe that we are listening to these frequent warnings. But sometimes I wonder... So often you see worldliness in the church. But that word scoffer there in verse 17, that word that word means mocker. This is someone that will make fun of the kind of ancient, authentic Christianity. The one that is making fun or mocking the faith that was once for all handed to the saints. Kids, you need to know this as you think about following Jesus. Your classmates will make fun of you. As they do we adults. You'll be called stupid or unintelligent. Because you believe in the supernatural. You'll be called unprogressive. Because you maintain Jesus and his word as your final authority. Not your feelings or the general sentiment of society. You'll be called homophobic. Transphobic. Because you don't celebrate pride month. You'll be called hateful or bigoted or misogynistic. For believing that the Bible teaches... That husbands should be the heads of their homes. And men should be pastors only. You'll be called narrow minded. For believing that Christ is the only way to heaven. Unloving for believing in the reality of hell. Legalistic for calling people to obey all that Christ commanded. On it goes. This is life. In Ward 3 of Washington D.C. in 2022. Scoffers. People making or mocking us for believing what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Remember, the apostles warned us about this. Uh, We see here, Jude says that we can identify them in a few ways. He says that they, first off, they follow their own ungodly passions. So as opposed to following Christ's passion for his beloved in the word, they're following their own passions. They are Their own authorities. They submit to no external authority. What is true for them is true for them. Second way to identify these mockers, says Jude, is to see that they cause divisions. Divisions in marriages. Divisions in families. Divisions in churches. Divisions amongst friendships. Maybe a division at jobs. Because of their intention to enforce their ungodly passions. They will mock you and cause divisions among Christians while at the same time possibly claiming to be part of the church. Third way we can discern them is by noticing, uh, as Jude tells us, that they're full of the world and void of the spirit. Their hopes and dreams are primarily, if not only, on this world. There's little to no hoping in heaven. As we will see in a moment, there's yeah, no hoping in heaven, and they're trying to make this heaven, this home, which reveals that the Spirit is not present, devoid of the Spirit, which reveals they're not Spirit is not present, since the Spirit's work, right, is to increase our love and appetite for Christ and the kingdom of heaven while still here on the earth. So, beloved, if you're going to persevere to the end, you and I are going to have to remember that there is an enemy actively trying to make us swerve from the truth. And so you're going to have to remember the predictions of the apostles that there will be scoffers, there will be mockers, people who will intimidate you by mocking you, making fun of you so as to pervert, not deny, so as to pervert the grace of God and lead you away from the love of God. Okay, what must be done? Clearly, the warnings of Jude are like reading a lot of our daily headlines, And so that leads us to that first question and first answer. What is our responsibility amidst all of these scoffers to persevere to the end? What's our responsibility? Our answer? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Remember that big idea? Keep yourselves in the love of God as you're being kept by the power and love of God. And we've heard a lot about this aspect of perseverance in the faith from James as he's emphasized that we needed to be doers of the word, not hearers only. All right, so I'm not going to linger too long here, but uh, not only because this it, we've seen it in James, but also I want to call you back on Thursday nights. Uh, we thought about the enemy's plan last Thursday night. We're going to feed you dinner. starts at 6.15. This week we're going to be thinking about the Lord's plan and the beatific vision, so we'll get some more help there. But if you look down there in verse 21, you'll see that line. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you guys, all right? Stay with me. That's the controlling action verb of this section, all right? All of the other verbs you see around them in verses 19 to 21, those are participles. They're helping verbs to this one verb to keep yourselves in the love of God, right? So there are three participles, three helping verbs to the command to keep yourselves in the love of God. And those three participles are pretty easy to see, right? Building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude loves threes. He's always doing things in threes. We're going to look briefly at those three things and the three others. But for now, let's just come back to this idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God. This is the answer to the first question that we're asking this morning. How does a Christian persevere today? What is our responsibility? We've got to keep ourselves in The love of God. Now, God uh, does understand that, as I've already read this morning. As Christians, he saves us and he keeps us. We'll think about that more. But we also must be keeping ourselves in the love of God. This is not a contradiction, friends. This is a tension. Contradiction would mean that they would be opposed to one another. These two things are not opposed, but they are tension. God sovereignly saves and keeps, and God understands that we play a role in that. And so since Jesus is regularly calling us to obey his commands, right? Jesus doesn't say, listen, I'm going to die for you and I'm going to keep you to the end so you can just chillax till you die. It's not what he says, right? He's telling us to look out, to be warned, to do this or not do that. He loves us first and finally, but we have to keep ourselves in that love. And if you were to kind of slow down and think about the illustration of marriage, it kind of makes the same point, doesn't it? Think about the covenant of marriage. I was married January the 24th, 2003 to my wife, right? Fully and finally married. I'm in. I'm married. I'm totally married. Bible tells me that, you're right, Malachi 3, God hates divorce. He's going to keep us to the end. What God joined together, let no man separate, these kinds of things. But what if I were just to get married on January 24th and I just hit the coast button in my marriage till I die? You know, we don't we don't get divorced or anything, but I kind of, we got married and I just go play golf on the weekends, come back home to my wife. You know, maybe we go on a vacation here or there, right? Maybe you go out to dinner once a year, something like that. How do you think my marriage would go if I stopped studying my wife? How would that go? Stop pursuing it. We might be fine for a week or two or a month, maybe even a year, but my marriage would cool off five, 10, 15, 20 years. If it was even present, it would be not much of a marriage so it is in our salvation. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We find here three ways in particular of which we can keep ourselves in that love. He lists six things. Let's think about three. The first three are personal. The last three are corporate or relational. Here we go. This is the ways that we can pursue our heavenly husband have a warm marriage, as it were. First, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. I love that, that he says your, right? It reminds us that salvation is a gift. God has given it to us. It's yours. Building yourselves up in your most holy. That's the first thing we need to do to, to build our, to, to, uh, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we can see what he means by faith by looking back again at verse three. Remember, contend for the faith. They can contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in other words, there is something that is the faith and there's something that is not the faith. Thus, the warnings about those that get inside of the church and not deny, but pervert it. Thus, the call to build yourselves up in the most holy faith, right? Jude wants us to read. Jude wants us to study to better understand the faith. At the core of it, at this church, probably would be encapsulated in our statement of beliefs. We think that's the core of the faith, explaining that. God wants us to go deeper and deeper into what Paul calls uh, sound doctrine. As Christians, we never graduate from the school of biblical theology. We're always seeking to learn, always learning. Not only because we have a most holy faith, not only because God deserves our worship, but also, again, as Jude is warning us, there's lots of people interested in perverting that faith. And so, if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we're going to have to keep studying the love of God in the Word of God. That's why we're not going to give you popcorn and slushy sermons. Teachings. Again, what do you think it would do for my marriage if I just stopped studying my wife? Stop pursuing her? Stop loving her by studying her? Right? It would result in a cooled off marriage. So if it's true that husbands and wives should keep themselves in their love by building themselves up in the truthfulness of one another, how much more must this be done in our relationship with the God of the universe, with our heavenly husband? And yet I fear so many confessing Christians don't do this. They don't build themselves up in the most holy faith. They don't study God. So many Christians wonder why they are so bored by the faith or by Jesus or by the Bible. Friends, it's not because Jesus is boring. It's not because the Bible is boring, right? The Bible in particular, right, written over span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors from everything from fishermen, right, to kings, 40 different years, three different continents, three different languages, one uniting message of the redemptive love of God for his wayward people. That's amazing. God's not uninteresting. The Bible is not uninteresting. So guess who that makes uninteresting? Me, right, and you. It's not the Bible that's boring. It's us that is going. We think about the fact that we just think about how much we, we build ourselves up in the most unholy social media buzz. I do this. I'm guilty of this. How much time do we literally waste on meaningless images and information? And meanwhile, maybe decades passed and some Christians haven't even taken the time to read the Bible through just once. Or to understand how God reveals himself in the Trinity. Or how the gospel is so beautiful and multidimensional. Or how amazing the promises of God are. How the Bible reveals the beauty of heaven. Too many Christians, I fear, just don't know their Bibles. And so it makes it easier to swerve from that truth. Since they're not giving themselves to it. In 2020, a, a faithful organization called Ligonier did a study. And they found that, quote... 30% of people calling themselves evangelicals reject the deity of Christ. Friends, you do know that if Christ is not God, you have no gospel. They found that 46% said that humanity is by nature good. You read two pages on the Bible and you know that's not true, right? Or they found that 42% of people that call themselves uh, Christians said that God accepts all the worship of all religions. And that's the first of the Ten Commandments. Or 22% of Christians said that gender identity is a personal choice. Beloved, how do you think these people will or will not persevere in the faith when they evidently don't even know the more basic aspects of our faith? How can you keep yourselves in the love of God if you've claimed to follow Jesus for, say, more than seven or eight or nine years and you don't even know, for instance, that Christ clearly is God? So many confessing Christians, friends, I fear, again, have a diet of kind of popcorn and slushies when it comes to the knowledge of Scripture. Beloved, we have to remember, we're at war. It's the way Scripture presents it to us. God's Word is a good and a gracious weapon to love our neighbors, to love God. So if you don't build yourselves up in the truth of the Word, and we cannot expect to keep ourselves in the love of god and so devote your life to the study of god's word so that you might keep yourselves in that love but second thing jude mentions there is praying in the holy spirit praying in the holy spirit now what what he means by praying in the holy spirit is to pray in such a way as to depend on the holy spirit that's what he means depend on the holy spirit so not don't depend upon yourselves don't depend upon your good accomplishments don't depend upon don't depend upon your eloquent sentences But prayer in the Holy Spirit is prayer that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Again, just as a marriage will grow cold if one spouse doesn't study another, so will the marriage also grow cold if they don't meaningfully engage one another in conversation. Right? And that's what prayer is, is conversation. It's us answering God as he speaks to us in his word and in the world. Jesus says that uh, if you abide in him and he in you, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from him you can do nothing. And, beloved, how do we abide but by prayer? Most especially, you won't keep yourselves in this love if you don't pray. Guys, it's really that simple. And prayer is not just thanking God for food and for your family. Praise the Lord. Yes, it is those things. But prayer is also crying out to God on hard days. Crying out out to God in struggle. Prayer is laboring to see uh, his glory spread in the nations and in our city and in the world. Prayer is confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. Prayer is pleading for justice. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes others, the good of our neighbors, for the glory of God. And so if you don't pray, then don't expect to keep yourself in the love of God. As we say often around here, Christianity is a terrible hobby. It is such a bad hobby. You'll never be happy with it. If Christianity, if all Jesus is, is just some hobby, the thing you do with your extra time. So if, if you're going to abide, to persevere, you must develop, friends, a habit of prayer. Again, I would invite you to join us as we try to do that at 5 o'clock tonight in prayer gathering. So often, prayer is hard, but I, when I get around others, it helps me to pray. Third thing Jude lists briefly there is waiting for mercy, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's the third thing he says we need to be doing to keep ourselves in the love of God. And here, when he says waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, here he's talking about hoping in heaven. That's the big idea. Waiting on the mercy that will come to us upon Christ's return wherein our eternal life is our final home. Right? We'll finally get heaven. We'll finally have the consummation of all things. So, beloved, if you're going to keep yourselves in the love of God, you're going to have to learn to hope in heaven. Our true home. If we are warned to look out for worldly people, it only makes sense that we would be otherworldly people. We would see ourselves as sojourners and aliens in this world, as Peter says. Or to quote Colossians, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so Jude lists three things here. Three simple things to keep ourselves in the love of God. Just the faith, devoting ourselves to understanding our faith in the word and in prayer and hoping in heaven. The basic ingredients of an ever increasing appetite for the love of God. But that's not all. Jude also lists three things that are relational, more corporate. Right, he says there briefly, have mercy on those who doubt. Right, in the church, we should be able to talk about our doubts. Right? Have mercy on those who doubt. Saving others by snatching them out of the fire. Right, once again, the New Testament's universal acceptance of hell. Show others mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, no patience for sin. Being attentive to if we're trying to save some we might get sucked in. But here, guys, Jude assumes that we are not only individually keeping ourselves in the love of God, but he also assumes that we are helping keep each other in the love of God. I'm too weak. I need you. You need me. Christianity, beloved, has never been an individual sport. It has always been a team sport because the Christian recognizes, again, as Jude teaches here, that we can all doubt. That we can all stray, that we can all get sucked into the sins of others. And we are not strong enough in and of ourselves to get home to heaven. Again, I need you, you need me. This is the beauty of the church that Jesus designed to be a community of faith. That we would be a kind of suburb of heaven here in the country of earth. So that when I'm down and you're up, you can help me. And when you're up and and I'm up and you're down, I can help you. Beloved, I've never met a single Christian that thrived apart from meaningful involvement in a healthy church. Because God didn't design the Christian life that way. Right? We are created in the image of God and God is by nature communal. Father, Son, Spirit. One God, three persons enjoying one another in the most holy faith, most holy love. We are intended to image that. But unlike God, we are all weak. We all have seasons of doubt and temptations that are strong. We have narratives that we get sucked into. But like any good team, right? We help each other. One guy's on a, you know, 10 game hit streak. Other guy's for his last 22. They help each other up. They help each other on towards the victory. This is love. This is what love does. Not letting people wander, but pursuing one another in love, in the most holy faith reminding, as you heard Ray pray earlier, reminding one another of the truth and our home in heaven. Beloved, this is what church membership is and what it does. We've committed to each other, to love each other in this faith, in humility and kindness and patience. But again, just like the limping antelope at the back of the herd that falls behind and is eaten easily by the lion, so is the Christian that hides or lives outside of the community of faith, the church. Oh, the grace That is the church. I thank God for you, Restoration Church. I would not be here were it not for you. My family would not be where it is today were it not for you. I thank God for you. I thank God for the elders of this church. I would not be where I am today were it not for the elders of this church. I thank God for you. If we're going to persevere to the end, our responsibility is to remember the predictions of the apostles. And secondly, we are going to have to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in the faith, praying in the spirit, hoping in heaven, living openly and honestly in community because it's too hard otherwise. We're too weak. And thanks be to God that he knows that temptation. And don't forget, beloved, that Jesus entered into all of that on his own accord. And he participated while he never sinned in and of himself, but he was doing these very same things. He too was building himself up in the faith. He too was praying in the spirit. He too was waiting for the consummation of all things. He too was rescuing those that were wandering. Which leads to our second and, or yes, yeah, second and final question. What is God's responsibility in our perseverance? You might be wondering, is this kind of a 50-50 thing? You know, Nathan, you used the marriage as sort of husband-wife. Is it kind of 50-50? Is that to get us home to the end? Is that what it is? The answer to that clearly is no you will see. Third point. Second question. Here's the answer. What is God's responsibility in our salvation? Persevering to the end. Be kept in the power and love of God. Be kept in the power and love of God. Or you want to say, you could say, God keeps you in his love. That's our answer. God keeps us in his love. And so, guys, let's not only read those final, beautiful, magisterial words, but take a look back at the very beginning of Jude, right there. Look at that first verse. So important. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and, look for it, kept for Jesus Christ. That's how he starts his letter. Now look how he ends his letter. Again, verse 24, 25. Now to him who is able to, y'all say it, one, two, three, keep. Here we go. Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore, amen. Jude begins his letter with God's beloved being called and kept, and then he ends his letter with us being kept by God. And in between is that call to keep ourselves in the love of God. And so we ask the question, this is, if you fell asleep, wake up right now. I need you to come back on this point, all right? Right? If we were to ask the question, what is the final, what is the decisive agent for getting us home to heaven? What is the final decisive agent to have us to persevere to the end? According to God's word, the answer is clear. It is God working through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the answer. First off, just take a look at that passage there. Look there in verse 24. First off, and most importantly, when it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he doesn't mean God is able in the sense of like, you know, he he can, but he might or he might not. That's not what he means. The whole passage is a doxological eruption of the might and the beauty of God. That's the context. He's trying to help us think about the might of God. He wants us to see that he's able. He's going to do it. He's got it in him to do this. He's the only one that is, right? If left to ourselves, none of us would have chosen Christ and none of us could maintain that love to the end. Only God is able to do that. Only God is able to raise the dead. Only God is able to keep the dead alive. And so beloved, where is your confidence to get home? Where's your confidence? Your confidence is in God. It's not in yourself. It's not even in me. It's not even in this church. It's in God. That's where our confidence is to get us out of this world and into the world to come. Some of you know this story of the time that I got stuck in the canyon of the Grand Canyon. Uh, I wasn't aware that this pastor that I asked to come preach was going to tell the story and he even have slides to boot uh, about it. Uh, but I went down in the canyon with our brother, Stephen Carr, and he's pastor out at Hamilton Baptist. We were down in the canyon, just me and him. I was coming back up that next day, and it's, uh, as I, I took out, I remember, I took out a, a bottle, an Nalgene bottle, and he looked at me. He's an experienced hiker. I'm not, as is evidenced by the story, not an experienced hiker. And he looks at me and says, is that all you're bringing? And I say, yeah, why? And he said, well, I'm planning on hiking into the desert. I don't know about you. So maybe I should go get another water bottle. Yeah, I think so. And so down we go into the Grand Canyon and up. We're coming that next day. And I did something you're not supposed to do in hiking. I stopped eating. It was hot. I don't like to eat when I'm hot. And we're going up this canyon wall. And suddenly my knee begins to give out. And suddenly I feel, well, nauseated. I don't want to do anything, go anywhere or eat anything or anything. And Stephen stood right next to me. And he would tell me all kinds of things. Again, an experienced hiker. He even he even told me, he said, if we get to the top of this thing, there's some ice cream. I'll get you some ice cream. Now, at the time, I didn't want any ice cream. But, you know, we might think of this for, you know, this illustration purposes a sort of kind of heaven. We get to the top, we'll get some ice cream. But I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to do anything. (laughs) But Stephen stood right next to me the whole way. He never left me. And I did as hard as it was. I did exactly what he told me to do. And we got out, obviously. And I did eat that ice cream cone, and it was fantastic. And by the way, you should eat food when you're hiking. Uh, it was amazing. I ate—I literally ate an ice cream cone. It was amazing. And literally, I'm not kidding, like six minutes, I felt one, not 80%, I felt 100%. I just needed calories. My body needed calories. But it was Stephen that I trusted in to get me out of there. I had no will of my own to get out of there. I literally would just was happy to die there. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to eat. I had no will. I was unable to get out of that canyon. Stephen knew what it took, and I trusted in him to get me out. Right? So it is with us, guys. We are unable to get out of the canyon, as it were. We are too weak. We are too feeble. We are too stubborn. We are too foolish. We trust in God to get us out. You and I are not able to persevere in our own strength. We can't. You and I are too weak to keep ourselves in the love of God. As we sing so often, right? Too prone to wander, too prone to leave the God we love. That's us. We are prone to love the world. We're prone to follow our own passions. We're prone to fit in here. I know I am. But listen. Your, you didn't author your salvation and you won't finish it either. Your confidence is in the God that raises the dead. He's the one that is able. So confess your weaknesses. Confess your temptations to stray. Confess your failures. And go to him day after distracting and disorienting, distracting and discouraging day. And say to him, God, I'm too weak. I don't want to do this. But I trust you. I don't trust me today. I trust you. Help me out of this. My confidence is in you. It's not in, it's not in me. It's not in him. It's not in her. It's in you. You gotta do that. We confess our weaknesses as Christians. Every other religion, including expressive individualism and secularism, guys, All of them, which are kind of religions in and of themselves, all of them fully and finally trust in their own industry to arrive at the celestial stores of whatever they believe heaven is. Every other worldview on planet Earth ultimately trusts in the industry of you and your will to do whatever it is you need to do to arrive at whatever heaven is. But not Christianity. Only Christianity acknowledges what we all know down deep. That we can't do it. That our hearts are like idol factories. Only Christianity confesses in public. What we all say to ourselves in private. I'm too insecure. The stuff that you don't like to say to people. That you're scared other people will find out. We say I'm full of doubts. I'm I'm greedy. I'm dishonest. I'm deviant. I'm selfish. I'm a drunkard. I'm a murderer. I'm I'm an adulterer. I'm tempted to give up on Jesus's. Sexual ethics, I'm tempted to give up on Jesus' commands. I'm tempted to just stop all of this. Give in to my passions, whatever they are. Or we say to ourselves, God wouldn't want to have anybody like me. Christianity speaks right into that. The gospel speaks right into that uniquely and powerfully. The gospel of Jesus Christ looks straight into our weaknesses, straight into our failures, straight into our doubts and calls them what they are. And then says to us, my confidence is not in me, though. It's in him. It's in him. My confidence is in God working through Christ because I know I'm unable in and of myself, but I know he is able. So it's him I trust to get me home. He is able to keep you, beloved, from stumbling. That's what it says. Look in verse 24. He's able to keep you from stumbling. That is fully and finally falling away. Able to keep you from stumbling, from apostasy, from fully and finally falling away from the most holy faith. And able to, notice what the text is doing, from something and to something. And notice there's two twos. Christianity sometimes Christians we're really bad at this. We always talk about what we save from. We need to think more about what we save to. Save from stumbling and present you able to present you blameless. That's amazing. That is to say present you not guilty. Clean. When we all know we're not clean. Able to present you, not not only keep you from stumbling, but to present you blameless, not guilty. Where? Before maybe some comparison to like Adolf Hitler so we can be blameless. Well, yeah, in comparison to him. Yeah, I'm good. Is that where we're presented blameless? No. Look again at the text. Blameless before the presence of his glory. How are jacked up folks like us. Going to be presented blameless before his glory. Guys, our confidence is in God to not only get us home, but when we die or when he returns, all of us will stand before the bright splendor of his glory where his purity and holiness will shine so brightly that the angels will have to shield their entire bodies as we thought about last week. But in that courtroom, that courtroom the holiness of God, in that courtroom, we are presented blameless. And while we are counted uh righteous, counted blameless, counted not guilty, we are reminded that it is the the imputed righteousness of Christ that has that to happen, which we'll come to in a second. But every sinful comment, every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, every sinful action, no longer held over us, but instead washed in the blood of Christ by his grace. We never get over that. And what is God's attitude when we come before him? Blameless before his glory. What's his attitude? So it could be that he knows, well, I counted it, you know, there's Nathan. He's a, you know, he's a piece of work, right? But I, you know, he, he, by grace through faith in Christ, he's counted blameless. So, yep, fine, let him go on into heaven. (sighs) God stinks that he has to be in heaven. Is that what he's like? No. Look at the text. What's God's attitude about it? That we're presented when we come before him, presented blameless, before his God. What's his attitude? How will he look at you when when you are presented blameless? You are presented before the presence of his glory. It doesn't say with joy, it says with great joy. He's so happy that you're his. So happy that he counted you blameless. So happy, right? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that where you are there, where I am there, you may also be. He's so glad. He's so joyful to have you be in his presence. He's keeping you, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Great joy. Presented before his presence with blamelessness, with great joy. When you come into his throne room, he not only sees you not guilty, he sees you as his precious child of whom he has longed to have with him. And when he sees you, it's like one of those ugly cries. I'm <laughs> so happy to see, right? He don't care. So joy, so much joy. And he knows everything about you. He knows it all. He knows that thing you did last week, last month, last year. He knows it all. Counts you blameless and so happy that you're his. And it goes on. We're presented before his Throne room, his glory with great joy. And this God that we're presented before is the only God. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering where we get this, this is one verse, give you a bunch of them. There's no other God than the God of the Bible. Which again is why the first commandment says, I have no other God before me. There's only one God. There are plenty of enemies, plenty plenty of idols, but there's only one God, our Savior, our Keeper. And you ask again, how does all of this happen? How does God keep us in his love to the end? How does he present us blameless with great joy? How does that happen since we're so covered with sin ourselves? How does that happen? And for my non-Christian friends, this is the most important question that you can ask. If you've fallen asleep, wake up right now. How does God save and sustain like this? Present blameless? How does this happen? The answer is in those next five words. And every single one of those words is critical. You need all of them. We are saved and we are sustained. We are rescued and kept in the love of God, presented blameless before His presence with great joy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how. God saves and God keeps us through Jesus. That means Savior. Christ, not His last name. That means Messiah. That's a title. As the Lord, master of our, not just me, it's us, our lives. Beloved, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, living a sinless life. And he uniquely, the only one that did. So therefore, as fully God and fully man, who is able to then offer a perfect sacrifice to atone, to assuage, to pay for all of the sins of all those that trust him. And so therefore his blood is spilled. And that's the money as it were. That's the ransom payment. And he is buried and raised on the third day. To show that the check cleared. His payment is possible. He's got enough blood to cover all that come to him. In faith. And you're counted his adopted son or daughter. Your sins all covered. Justification. You're counted righteous. (laughs) It's amazing. Which is why, by the way, when we think about this perseverance of the saints, Hebrews 7.25 makes this clear. When it says that he, so he, by the way, Jesus raises from the dead 40 years on the earth, ascends to heaven, right? And he is alive in his resurrected body right now. And we ask the question, what's Jesus doing in heaven right now? Well, here it is. This is how we get perseverance of the saints. Set Hebrews 7.25. He, Jesus, Is able to save to the uttermost. That is save to the end. Save to the uttermost. Those who? Those who draw near to God through him. Same theology as Jude. Since he, Jesus, always. There's the key. Always lives to make intercession for them. For those that come to God in Christ. So in other words, what Hebrews seven twenty five is saying, every time Nathan Knight sins and Nathan Knight does sins, every time Nathan sins, Jesus is going, he prays to the Father. He's at the right hand. Here's my blood, Jesus, paid for. And there's another one from Nate, five minutes later, I still love him, here we go, paid for. I'm praying, Jesus always lives to make intercession for me. How else could we sinners in need of such mercy and grace do anything else? In this passage, other than to do what Jude does in finishing off his letter. What else could we do? But erupt in doxological praise. That's what Jude does. To him, this only God, to him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority, no authority over him, before all time, past, now, and forevermore. Amen. Beloved, the final cause, the final decisive cause for our salvation beginning to end is not us. We are too weak. We are too feeble, too sinful. Giving in to the temptation of the world. If we are going to be saved and sustained, God is going to have to do it himself. Beginning to end because only he is strong. He is able to save to the uttermost, And that's uniquely seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a promise, by the way, guys. You hold on to that promise in verse 24. Your confidence, beloved, it, to be kept in the love of God is God himself working through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Working through this gospel. This is so full of mercy and grace. And so, beloved, remember this truth. And friend, if you've never put your whole confidence, whole confidence in the person and the work of Christ to save you to the end. Today's the day of salvation for you. Put all of your confidence in him, not in yourselves. Put it in him. You will never be counted blameless before the presence of God because of your ability to keep yourself in the love of God. It's never going to happen. No matter of church church attendance, no matter of Bible reading, no matter of good deeds to the poor, none of it will be enough. Your confidence has to be in Christ The sufficiency of Christ to save you and to keep you to the end. And so, friend, repent of sins. Believe and throw all of yourselves on all of Jesus. Knowing all the while, he's the one that's going to save you and keep you to the end. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the dependence of the Spirit even now. God, save me. God, keep me. And for the rest of us, we beloved happy few that have done this, that have thrown ourselves on Christ. We beloved children of God, listen, this is your gospel. This is your God. He loves you. He's for you. He saved you. He's keeping you all the way to the end. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't fully and finally trust yourselves. You've got to keep yourselves in the love of God by doing those things, but ultimately your confidence is in him. Put all of your confidence in him. Keep yourselves in the love of God, Restoration Church, and be kept by the power and the love of God. And soon enough, we'll be home. I can remember when I was in the middle of that canyon, I didn't like Stephen. I didn't like what he said. I didn't like what he told me to do. When I got out of that canyon, I was so thankful that I listened to every word he said. So thankful that I got out. It may be hard. It may be hard to keep yourselves in the love of God, beloved. But I can promise you that as you put your whole confidence in him and give your all to him, when you get home to heaven, there'll be something better than ice cream waiting on you. And you will be full, you will be complete. And you will give all praise and honor and glory to him because he's the one that saved you and he's the one that kept you. That's how strong he is. That's how much he loves you. And so may we give ourselves to him in similar ways. Let's pray together. Worthy. Worthy are you, Jesus, of all praise and glory and honor and dominion and power from forever and forever. Have mercy on us, God, for the many ways in which we not listen to the warnings of the prophets. And thank you that as we sang, there's more mercy in you than there is sin in us. The scoffers are loud, God, the enemy is strong. Our sin in our own hearts, strong. But you're our hope. You're our trust. You are our sufficiency. You are able. Our hope, our confidence is in you. Oh God, get us home. And may it be soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.